This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. And I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. Ask the AMPs is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. If you have a question, reach us at podcasts at aopa.org. That's podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Did you guys see that, AD, that just came out on the Stretted Wing Legacy Cessnas? Oh, yeah. It's it's the Strut Attach Point at the doorpost? Right, down at the doorpost. And it's uh, pretty much everything 172 and larger uh, well, 172, 182, 205, 206, 207, and 210s. It's a, you know, kind strut, of a long... Strut, strut based. Strutted. Two yeah, strutted. Yes. Yeah, two tens up through 66, so not the 67s. And what's involved in that inspection, uh, Paul? Well, though the inspection's easy. You just get under there and look. And most of us that have been working on these planes for years have been looking at them because it's a, it's a known issue. But you do have to pull up floor panels, and I mean, it's a purposeful look. It's not just a quick glance during an annual. I mean, you get down there with flashlight and a mirror, or I prefer a borescope, um, and check the attachment area for cracks, bulkheads, and the fittings, and all that. And then if you have cracks, they want you to install the new uh, service bulletin, which is close to 40 man hours, and it's really easy to do it wrong. Is it a structural doubler, something like that? Yeah, it's a it's a change in the reinforcement. It's a different it's, instead of a forging. It's a uh, it's a machined part. It's a little heavier. It includes an extra angle brace and a few other things like that. But it incul- includes um, some high lock style fasteners. So you know you got to drill it very precisely and get a drill straight underneath the floorboard. Uh, just Fraught with challenges. So, and an alternate means of compliance is just to remove the strut entirely, right? And then be a cardinal wannabe. <laughs> <laughs> no. Of course, that's, that's what you would say. <laughs> Let's get started. Our first guest is Paul, who's having a difficult time with his turbohook charger. Go ahead, Paul. Well, I have a Cessna 340. I bought it about 18 months ago and um, had it pre-bought. I've got a little bit of piston time, about 6,000 hours. This airplane came with 17 hours on the engines. They were a recent RAM installation. 
And uh, I believe the previous owner did it so that he'd have less trouble selling the aircraft. Apparently it wasn't moving. It was also done about six months prior to me buying the airplane. In fact, I remember reading in Mike Bush's book, if he could do it over, he'd buy the plane with timed out old engines and replace them himself. Boy, did I get that memo with this experience. So um, initially when I'd get to altitude, I'd pull the power back, they come back nicely. The right engine would bootstrap and then I'd bring the, a little bit, I'd bring the props back. Then it would really bootstrap as well as the manifold pressure would drop. So really actually I discovered later I had two problems. Uh, Naturally we took the wastegate and uh, Ram said, okay, it's close enough to warranty. We'll rebuild it for you, send it back. And when they sent it back, pretty much the, the bootstrapping challenges had gone away. But I hadn't been to high altitude, you know, to the 20s for, for a few months. And when I went back, it was a trip to Denver, brought the power back, brought the props back. Sure enough, that right manifold pressure started dropping. So I just pushed it up, brought the mixture back. I like to run lean of peak, especially on long legs like Denver. Same thing, but not as aggressive. So I started troubleshooting with the help of my shop. We'd already rebuilt the wastegate, so we started looking for intake leaks. Got that thing pressurized to over 100 PSI, no intake leaks. Uh, Next thing we did is we checked the exhaust manifold. Then we're beginning to scratch our heads, so we started shotgunning a little bit. Replaced the variable absolute pressure controller. Uh, Someone else suggested check the Y-Connect. Sometimes it gets bent, reduces the flow, because clearly it looked like a flow problem, an airflow problem. Re-rigged the throttle because the VAPC. Checked the clamp to the Sonic Ventura. It's a a cabin pressurized airplane. Borescoped the heck out of the system, and when they're borescoping the engine exhaust system, they found some curled exhaust, uh, curled veins on the exhaust side of the turbocharger. I took those photos, which were Honestly, I didn't think that was bad enough. It was very slight. Sent those to some uh, turbocharger experts. They said, hell yeah, you need to change the turbocharger. About $20,000 later, I still have the problem. You know, what, what you really need to do, I think, is in the maintenance manual, is a page that describes what's called a critical altitude test. It's a, it's a test flight protocol where they have you climbed at various altitudes and set various power settings and verify that you're getting specific manifold pressures. And it would be a really good idea to make a copy of that page in the maintenance manual. And then just when you go up and fly the airplane, go fly that protocol and see if, uh, if both engines are, are meeting the specifications. Uh, I know the shit you're talking about. I actually did that very early in the problem and it didn't give us any really valuable information, interestingly enough. But I know exactly what you're talking about. It even has sort of stair-stepping places where you can enter the, the, right. the numbers at different altitudes. I mean, because the, the, the reason I say that is I, I looked at the video that you sent, and I'm not convinced you have a problem. You know, what you're describing is, is normal. For, for these engines. And so I, I'm concerned that you may have been 
when you were talking about a bootstrapping problem early on and that that was cured with the wastegate. And when you say a bootstrapping problem, do you mean unstable manifold pressure? Correct. Okay. Manifold pressure popping up and down. Okay. Because because the bootstrapping is a term that that is is used to mean a couple of different things. What I was seeing in the video, which is what I would call bootstrapping, but it doesn't it doesn't comport with the way you're using the word, is simply that the wastegate is fully closed and the system goes unregulated because it can't it can't regulate any further. Once the wastegate is closed, that's as far as it can it can go. And you know, any time at, at high altitude, if if you lean the engine, if you reduce RPM, all of those things reduce the amount of exhaust flow that's going into the turbocharger. And at some point, you will always get to a point where manifold pressure will start reducing as you continue to reduce RPM or you continue to reduce fuel flow. And so the higher you go, I mean, we, we would like to be able to operate these engines at, at, at high manifold pressure and low RPM and lean of peak, lean of peak fuel flow. But the higher you go, the more you have to compromise because there's just there's just simply not enough exhaust to to spin the turbocharger fast enough. And the fact that this is happening in both engines, you know, sort of it's only happening in the right engine. What's the it that's only happening in the right engine? The uh, when I bring the manifold, when I bring the RPM, because this will happen even as, as at nineteen thousand, which seems awfully low for a bootstrapping problem. Unless, of course, what they found with this most recent issue is causing the low flow. Again, what what is it that's only happening in the right engine? Because when I when I look, the uh, I, manifold pressure on the right, the right manifold pressure drops at three inches, but not the left. It's toward the end of the video. Well, I saw that at the end of the video, but then it quickly corrected itself. The, the needles split, but then they came back. So in other words, uh, well, I, I brought both props back, but only the right manifold pressure came back. Then I reached mm -hmm. over and pushed forward the right uh, manifold pressure. Well, to get you know, it again, that's why I'm suggesting that you do the, the critical altitude test, because the, the two engines are never going to be identical. And what we really care about is whether both engines meet the minimum spec. One engine's always going to be a little bit better than the other. It just is the nature of the bees. They can't be identical. But we want to make sure that both engines are meeting the, the, the minimum specifications. And the way you do that is to fly that, that critical altitude protocol. But again, we're, you, know, you do have to accept, accept the fact that, that the engines aren't, aren't going to be identical. It's it you know it's in, all sorts of things with these twins. It's impossible to rig the 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 throttle so that they track perfectly together throughout the entire range. Probably the best you can do is have them be together at full throttle and have them be together at idle. But in the middle, they're they're not going to track the same. And there's just lots of little things like that. That um, this is you know as you pointed out, this is extremely old technology. <laughs> And uh, we, we obviously have the ability to do it a lot better nowadays, but the, these engines were, you know, mostly certified in the, in the 50s. Right. It's unfortunate the economics don't exist for today's generation. Well, excellent.
We're going to do the critical altitude test tonight. We'll let you know what happens. Okay. Awesome. Well, good luck. Sorry, yeah. sorry that you threw this much money at the problem. It's. Uh, yeah, Paul, you came a long way. Just hang in there for this last piece. It sounds like you got a great airplane. Otherwise, you've uh, you know shaken everything else out. So hopefully, this test will work out, and it'll be good from here on in. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Great question. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, Paul. And by the way, finally, name I can remember. Okay, so next up is DJ, and she has a question all pilots have wondered when cycling the prop before takeoff. Go ahead, DJ. Okay, well, I basically, I'm a fairly new owner of a uh, Cessna 182. The pilot's operating handbook says, as part of the um, you know pre-startup, to cycle the prop, but it doesn't really elaborate beyond that. I flew a after I purchased the plane, I flew up with a, a CFI who basically had me cycle the prop. Started flying with my, and at that point in time, we checked simply for RPM drop. Um, after that, I started flying with my then regular instructor. She had me cycle the prop three times, checking for RPM drop, manifold pressure drop, and oil on the wind. Wanting to know more about the engine on my aircraft, I flew with um, our chief instructor, our chief pilot, who is also an ANP. So he had me cycle the prop also three times checking for RPM drop, manifold pressure drop, but oil pressure drop. Started flying with a different CFI who was also the owner of a 182. And he, again, had me cycle it three times, checking for RPM drop, manifold pressure drop, oil on the windscreen, but to, ha- but to cycle the prop much more <laughs> deliberately and more slowly than all the other um, <laughs> instructors. So he did a bunch of research online to try to understand what I should be doing with the uh, prop cycling Came across a number of um, contributors who suggested that you should only prop cycle the prop once, and in those cases, to just to make sure that it's off, that the governor is operating uh, properly, or in some cases, in cold conditions, to cycle the oil. So, with all of the conflicting information that I received about the prop cycling, what we do, why we do it, when it should be done, and you know, I just wanted to know, you know, when it should be done. Why do it? And, you know, what are the best ways to do it to, I guess, help preserve the longevity of the engine? Because it seems somewhat laborious at times. So that is my question. It's a great question. I, I love things like this because yeah. it just <laughs> underscores, it underscores how much um, unfounded religious dogma we have that, <laughs> that gets passed from one CFI to another to another <laughs> And nobody ever questions why why we do it this way. It's just that it's always been done this way. And, and they don't know what is happening when they pull the lever. They have no clue yeah. what's going on in the engine. But, well, well we know why you should the do it. The gauges move, yeah. that's all. <laughs> so, I mean, what are we trying to accomplish here? What we're trying to accomplish is, is two things. And DK mentioned those two things. The first thing we're trying to, men- trying to determine is whether the, the 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 prop governing system is functional or not. The second thing we're trying to do is to put a little warm oil in in the in the prop hub, so that when you go to take off and the prop has to make some fairly major changes in pitch to compensate, it's doing it with with oil that that has some flowability to it. So you know what I've always taught. My students, and by the way, my instructor taught me to do it three times too. You know, and I don't, I don't want to tell you how many years I did it three times before I started saying, "Why am I doing this?" You know, but now that I understand why I'm doing this, 
what, what I teach my students is cycle the prop once. The cycling the prop is kind of hard on the on the hardware, you know, and so you don't really want to do it any more than you have to. Cycle a prop once. Don't deep cycle it. Just cycle it enough to to see that there's a that there's a response in the RPM. And if the response is relatively prompt, then you're done. If the response seems very sluggish and delayed, then it might be worth doing it a second time to get a little bit more warm oil into the prop hub. And that's probably only something that would happen to you in real cold weather. But don't do it any more than, 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 than you have to to verify that the system is working. And usually, you know, 98% of the time, that just takes, takes, takes once. Anybody else want to disagree yeah. with me on this? No, no I, I don't disagree. But I remember the, a flight instructor was telling me about the three times, you know, you're going to pull it for this, pull it for this, and pull it for the other. And one was uh, to hear the RPM drop and then look for an oil pressure drop because the oil pressure will will make a slight dip when you pull the lever as well. And to look for oil in the windshield. So being the, the ornery cuss that I am, I thought, okay, well, when I pull the control back, I can hear the RPM drop. So I don't need to watch the tachometer. I can watch the oil pressure gauge or the manifold pressure gauge if you prefer that. Uh, and I can see that happening. And if the oil pressure doesn't change, but the prop does, well, I still know that it's working. And I don't <laughs> need to pull it one time to see oil on the windshield because if it happens the first time, the oil will still be there. You know, it doesn't like evaporate and go away. You know, <laughs> it doesn't get blown away. It, it doesn't get blown away. It's still going to be on the windshield. So, um, yeah, uh, one time should be plenty in most cases. I usually just do two, but I, I watch one gauge once and then I watch one gauge the other time. But here's a question. What Why if you do you watch? I'm watching the RPM first, and then I'm watching my oil pressure. That, and why, are, why are you watching your oil pressure? Because I like to, you know, make sure the little needle goes <laughs> if, back. Yeah, if, if, if you cycled the prop and the oil pressure didn't move, it what would you do differently? <laughs> I'd taxi back with my tail between my legs. <laughs> but, but here's a question. If you're doing touch and goes and taxiing back uh, for a takeoff, should you cycle the prop every time you take off or just on the first first go? No, oh, I, I wouldn't. I mean, my answer is first flight of the day only. Yeah, that's I've it. I've heard that. But, you know, it's really cool. You're in the run-up area and you're like, I have a constant speed prop. I'm going to cycle my prop. And all of a sudden, <laughs> fixed pitch guys are looking at you like you're a cop. Oh. oh, by the way, you know the best time to look for oil on the windshield? <laughs> right before you clean the windshield. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, oh, here's that's another, another question for you. So in the Cardinal, it cycles very slow. I can let it go all the way down and back. It doesn't seem to hardly move very much. When I cycle the prop in the Lancer Legacy, I was taught to do a really quick pull because if it goes down too far, it puts a lot of, quote, torque on the engine and is, is tough on the engine. Is that an old wives' tale? Well, it's not an old wives' tale that it's tough on the engine, deep cycling the prop, and there's no reason to do it. Okay. Um, it, it, it's also true. Yeah, it's also true that some airplanes, for some reason, respond slower than others. I know, you know, uh, Chris's Bonanza, you, you pull the prop lever back and you can count to five before you see anything yeah. happen. In yeah. my 310, it happens right away. I cannot explain that, but different planes react uh, either more promptly or less promptly. So, DJ, does yours cycle pretty quick? 
It does cycle pretty quickly, yes. Okay. How long have you owned the plane? Um, since May. Since oh. May? Oh, wow. wow. New owner. So in all the pandemic, have you been doing a lot of flying or has it kind of cut it back for you? Um, once I got it, I just decided to continue to fly. <laughs> Good for you. Fly. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. That's awesome. That's a great plane. By the, by the way, it seems to me if you're if you're up at, at eleven thousand feet in the left seat of a sky lane, you're pretty well social distanced. Yes, yeah. I would agree. Yep. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Well, DJ, that was a really great question, and uh, thanks for uh, dialing in and uh, and trying to stump us. I think uh, I think that we uh, got some good information there. Thank you for yep. your information. Thanks, Enjoy DJ. Enjoy the sky lane. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. I will. <laughs> Hey, our next question is from Mark, who has a question about a, a pretty unique airplane. Don't know that I've seen one of these, but uh, welcome, Mark. What you got for us? Hello. I'm in the market for my first airplane, and considering my price range, I'm kind of looking at the ones that are on the special bargain section of the lot, and all of them have a story to tell. So this one <laughs> is an experimental wood and fabric airplane, so the only corrosion that I'm concerned about is in the engine. It has... 250 hours on the airplane overall since 1996, I think. But digging at the logbooks, only 50 of those hours have been since 2008 and only three hours within the past two years. Okay. It's a Lycoming 320 engine. And so I've heard about the possibility of camshaft rust. And I guess my question is, is it riskier to pull a cylinder to try to get a borescope up in there and look for rust? Or should I just fly, if I get the airplane, should I fly the airplane and monitor with oil analysis? You know, which is the greater risk? That's that's interesting. So the, the first question is, are you going to determine the condition of the cam and the and the cam followers before you buy or are you going to buy and then worry about it so we'll, we'll establish that first and then we'll decide what to do yeah pretty much well one, one question that occurred to me when i was hearing the question was where exactly was did this aircraft spend those couple of years of not being used for ah. many years of not being used. Was, was it in South Florida or was it in, uh, in Colorado? Well, I'm located in Pennsylvania, and in the microclimate for this airplane, it's been in a metal hangar with a gravel floor since at least 2008. In when Pennsylvania? Talk, in Pennsylvania, yep. And so I talked to the local mechanic on the field, and I said, do you see rust in Lycomings often? And he said, no. But he's also the A&P that had done the inspection on this and is swearing up and down this airplane's in great shape and I should buy it. Well, so, of course, of course, we see problems with Lycomings all the time. In fact, Lycomings tend to have a lot more cam and lifter problems than Continentals because of the high positioning of the camshaft in, in Lycomings. Uh, the cam is the very first thing to lose its protective oil film after shutdown and the very last thing to get oiled after the engine has started again. So, you know, Colleen just took her engine apart not long ago, and it's very similar to yours. But so the question is, seriously, are you going to buy it and then look at the cam? Or is this something you want to determine before you buy the airplane? 
Oh, you're asking me. I that's yes. the reason. That's Yo, the you're reason the one that, that called in. Now you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm I can looking... I can answer Colleen's questions all day long, but or, or Mike's, but we don't want to listen to you, Paul. <laughs> no, no, I don't either. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was looking at doing a pre-purchase inspection, and one of the things was the once again the same mechanic that's been doing the annuals on it said, "Well, I can pull a cylinder." But I've I've listened to a lot of stuff from Mike where he says cylinder work is is very hazardous, and so from not knowing about airplane engines like car engines, if the camshaft is going to wear out, it's kind of one of those things where it slowly wears and you slowly lose power. And maybe that would be detected either with low power or oil analysis or a compression check. But I didn't know on airplane engines, is this the case that that camshaft could wipe and lose power quickly? No, it won't. I mean, you're not going to fall out of the sky because the camshaft wears. That's that's not the concern. So the concern is if it's rusted now, uh, you pull a cylinder, you have a look at the cam, and that's good. If you don't pull a cylinder, the metal that's coming or the rust, all the residue that comes off the cam and the lifters is not going to show up in an oil analysis. It's going to show up in the filter, and it's going to show up over a long period of time. So if you really want to know about the cam and the lifters on a Lycoming, I don't know of any other way to know other than pulling a cylinder. You know, if it's been in a protected environment, it may be perfectly fine, but that's a that's a lot of years. That's a let, whole let, lot of years. Let me offer a differing opinion. No, <laughs> what? Um, what? Um, first of all, my, my company does uh, manages many hundreds of prebuys a year. It is very. It would be very, very unusual to find a seller yeah, who yeah. would consent. To having cylinder removed during a pre-buy, that that's a horribly invasive thing, and it's far more invasive than what is normally allowed during a pre-buy. Yeah. Second of all, even if you removed a cylinder, there's no assurance that you're really going to be able to make the sort of determination that you're looking to make because what happens with cam and lifter spalling is that during the period of disuse. The, the cam will develop little tiny microscopic pits that are so small that they're, they're really quite hard to see. But then once the engine becomes active again, the, the action of the, the mechanical action of the cam and lifter starts enlarging those little tiny corrosion pits. And they get bigger and bigger and eventually significant pieces of, of material start coming off the cam. And those are the things that show up in the oil filter. So with with Continentals, we we can pull lifters very easily during a pre-buy without without really doing anything particularly invasive. With Lycomings, we can't do that. They're, they're mushroom-style lifters that they can only be removed by splitting the case. Obviously, you can't do that. One approach that you might want to consider in an aircraft like this where the seller knows that it's been inactive for a very long time and that it represents a very high risk is to do something like this make a deal with the seller if you can to put some reasonable amount of money away in an escrow account let's say 10 grand and buy the airplane ten thousand dollars of the purchase price is going to go into an escrow account after a hundred hours or 12 calendar months, whichever comes first, if the engine isn't making significant ferrous metal, 
then the seller gets the money that went into escrow. If the engine starts coming apart on you, then you get the money that was in escrow to, to pay for your, your unscheduled teardown. You know, Lycomings present a real problem. Lycomings that have been uh, undergone long periods of disuse represent very high risk for the buyer. And that's particularly true if that time was spent in an area of, of, of high environmental corrosion risk. And making a deal like what I just described, where, where the, the buyer and seller agree to put some money aside and see you know, whether the engine survives the, the next year or the next 100 hours without things starting to come apart, is a pretty fair way, I think, for both buyer and seller to deal with a situation like this. Finally, and I'll just, let me just underscore something I think Paul said, which is oil analysis is not going to tell you anything. Because if, if first of all, if the engine's been unused for a period of time, the first few oil analyses, the iron's going to be sky high. It just always is. And that's because there's going to be light rust on the cylinder walls. And when you run the engine, the light rust scrapes off and, 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 and you'll, you'll see a very, very high iron. And it'll probably just go away by itself, and it, it doesn't normally represent a threat. If the cam and lifter starts coming apart, you almost never get to see that in oil analysis because the, the metal that gets thrown off by cam and lifter spalling is large enough that it gets caught in the oil filter. And it never winds up in the sample jar, and you never see it in oil analysis. But you will see it uh, in filter inspection, and that's why we put a lot of emphasis on doing careful filter inspection. So my, my suggestion is to try to, to deal with this through negotiation rather than inspection. You know, what you're talking about, Mike, what you're suggesting is a strings attached type of um, sale. Yes. And if I were selling, uh, thinking about when I bought my uh, wood and fabric experimental airplane, I don't think the buyer would have gone for that. And instead, um, I, you know, we just used the fact that it had, hadn't flown. I don't even know if this plane is airworthy or if, it, if you're going to put some time on it before you take it, um, would you have a chance to even cut the filter open after flying it for a couple hours before you buy it? Because a filter inspection might show something that would help you talk the buyer down if you had real evidence at the time of the sale. And this is what happened with me when I bought my Skybolt. We flew it for a couple hours just to, to take a test ride. Uh, and then I insisted on doing an oil change and I found metal in the filter and I was ready to walk away, but we negotiated the price down and I accepted it and then accepted that I would be tearing down the engine shortly after. Sometimes it's easier to, you know, presenting the owner with evidence of metal in the filter is a better way to kind of get him to face the music and negotiate. Okay. Yeah, this uh, this is an estate sale, and the family doesn't know a whole lot about the airplane, so they they seem pretty amenable to anything that I, I bring to them. I kind of wish I'd used a pseudonym on this podcast, then I could <laughs> play this back for them. But I, I, I know it might a guy. Be... <laughs> I know a guy. We have copious amounts of listeners, so I'm sure they're listening. That was a great question, Mark. And, and I love it that we didn't agree on the answer. That makes it a whole lot more fun. But we appreciate you calling very much. And no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good luck with the plane. Absolutely. I'm going to have to look it up. What, what kind of airplane yeah. is this, by the way? Oh, sorry. It's a Peel Super Emerald. 
It's I have a no idea what that is. <laughs> the design was later developed, or the Cap 10 was developed off of it. So if you know what a Cap 10 is oh, like, yeah. Yeah. our next question is from Richard, and he has a question one that a lot of people. Uh, want to ask, but are afraid to ask for fear of what they're going to hear. So go ahead, Richard. Uh, well, my question is about additives. I've heard a lot of old, old-time guys that do their maintenance and stuff, some AMPs and just general pilot stuff about using like maybe Marvel Mystery Oil. I know it's approved by the FAA, but they say to put some in the fuel and then the engine i have a 65 pa 28 cherokee 140 and i'm just curious about is it snake oil or is it possibly a benefit to maybe keep the rings you know these using 100 ll is prone to you know carboning up and stuff like that and it's like keeping the rings free and all the other good stuff. So I've been, I've been actually been putting it a little bit in the crankcase and a little bit in the fuel when I get fuel. So I was just wanting to know. I've been reading your book, Mike, by a couple of them, incidentally, and I've know you touched on that, but I was just wanted to hear from all three of you and well, appreciate your time. So Richard, here's the thing: um, everybody has an opinion, and we all have kind of the same opinion. But we have been waiting for someone to ask this question. <laughs> so <I'm> just, <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get all kinds of, uh, I don't know, do we get hate mail? I don't know if we get hate mail. I don't get it. So, you know, it's okay with me. I, I have to give my opinion first, and then I'll let Mike and Colleen weigh in. <laughs> so <laughs> We're holding our breath, Paul. Yeah. Don't go too long, Paul. <laughs> I, I won't go too long. This will be really quick. So you put stuff in the engine, and everybody I hear that puts stuff in the engine, they say it works great. The engine lasts forever. It's wonderful. I can really tell it runs better. But I there's no data at all to support it. So it's kind of like when I go outside the door here in my shop and you know do a dance to keep the elephants away, then am I successful at keeping the elephants away or... Well, we'll just let it go at that. So now I'm done now. That's all. Yeah. So so on my quick testimonial, I actually have a five-gallon jug of this stuff in my hangar. And years ago, somebody told me to put it in my engine. So I put it in the fuel and I put it in the oil. And I didn't notice any difference, but I felt better. So there you I, go. I don't, I don't think there's anything bad about it if you wanted to use it. Although somebody once told me that if you used it on a mid or high time engine, you might actually knock loose a bunch of deposits and they'd clog parts of your engine. So maybe you shouldn't use it, but I never had any ill effects from it. But then again, I've stopped using it for the last 20 years. So I have some if you want some. <laughs> <laughs> P-O-D. You could pour it into quart bottles and just send it to <laughs> listeners. Yes. Well, the good news is <laughs> that if you add it to the oil, it won't hurt anything. I would be a little reluctant to add it to the fuel, at least in any significant quantity, because basically what, what Marvel Mystery Oil is, is it's not a mystery, by the way, anymore, because there's a, there's a, on, you go online and there's a, material safety data sheet, which is required by whatever government agency requires these things. So we know exactly exactly what's in, in Marvel Mystery Oil. 
it's it's uh, it's mostly a bunch of solvents. It's uh, some petroleum distillate solvents. It's uh, Stoddard solvent. It has a little bit of TCP in it, triacrylphosphate, which is a an anti-knock agent. But if you really wanted an, the anti-knock agent, you should buy the Alcor TCP. I don't recommend using it because it's very very toxic stuff, and it's got some uh, some dichlorobenzenes in it, which is a is is a solvent. It's a very effective solvent, but the bad part about it is that it converts under heat to hydrochloric acid, and uh, uh, the, your your that's encouraging. Your oil has some acid neutralizers in it, so a little bit of hydrochloric acid will get neutralized. But if you use it very much, it will overwhelm the acid neutralizers and start creating acidic oil, which is very uh, corrosive. So I, I I would not use Marvel Mystery Oil on a regular basis um, because I think the negatives outweigh the positives. The one thing that I know that it is has has a history of being effective at is is freeing up um, stuck hydraulic lifters. If you hear valve clatter, you might want to dump some Marvel Mystery Oil in in the oil to clean those things up. But I wouldn't use it on a regular basis because both because it's toxic and because it uh, it it tends to uh, generate hydrochloric acid in the oil anyway it's great to have your question and we really were anxious to uh, to get to respond to it it's it's a lot of fun to to talk about the pros and cons so but thanks for the call appreciate you being on well yeah I appreciate your time and Mike I'm enjoying your books and stuff and uh, I need an autograph on one of them but uh, you know, I'll just discontinue the Marvel and stuff, and <laughs> use use the start using the Cam Garden stuff instead. So, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Next up is Greg, who's done a lot of research into CHT probes, but he still has some concerns and questions. Well, Greg. Oh, thanks. So my question is: uh, We have a 1980 Cessna 172N with an O three twenty H two A D. Oh boy, <laughs> it's been good to us, so no complaints. Uh, we do have a Tannis engine preheat system installed, and the heating elements are threaded into the thermal wells in the cylinder. And uh, after we had the Tannis system installed, we later installed a Insight G two engine monitor. And since the thermal wells were already occupied by the Tannis heating elements, we used the uh, spark plug uh, gasket CHT probes. And I was curious how the cylinder head temperature readings compare between the spark plug gasket probes and probes that would be threaded into the cylinder wall or to the cylinders. And if there's any adjustments that I would need to make for trying to monitor and maintain or run the right cylinder head temperatures. Would you mount the, did you mount them in the top spark plugs or the bottom ones? They are mounted in the lower spark, on underneath the lower spark plugs. Okay. Well, they'll give a little warmer readings there. Okay. Yeah. It can, it can, can be more than a little. We've seen, yeah. we've seen them be as much as 40 degrees Fahrenheit hotter than the spark plug well probes. 
Yeah, so it's and, an easy uh, fix. If it's running too hot, just put them on the top spark plugs and the <laughs> engine's great. Yeah. Really? It really <laughs> Okay. But, Sorry. But, Sorry. But seriously, if, if, if you want a, quote, accurate, unquote, CATs, that is ones that, that can be, you know, compared with, with uh, some of the guidance that uh, is provided as to what cylinder head temperatures ought to be, because it, the cylinder head temperature in the CHT well is the one that everybody uses sort of as the standard by which things are measured. There are a couple of options. Uh, I know that, for example, um, JPI makes a piggyback probe that gets screwed into the well and then the um, the Tannis heater or the uh, factory original CHT probe can be screwed into it so that you can get two things attached to that well. I don't know offhand whether Insight offers a similar piggyback probe. The other option is that is to change the Tannis heating elements that you're using. Nowadays, Tannis favors a heated bolt that is used to secure. It's, it's put in, in place of one of the bolts that holds the rocker cover onto the cylinder. And the heat is is uh, uh, passed into the cylinder head through through uh, this special heated bolt, uh, and that frees up the uh, the well for for a CAT probe. So you've got a couple of different options, and then the final option that you have is to make some sort of a determination of how much error your particular CHT your your gasket probes are. Are, are creating and you know make yourself a little correction chart, but CHT probes are, are are a little bit problematic, both because they're not accurate and because you know normally when we change spark plugs we like to put a nice fresh copper gasket in uh, for sealing each time uh, because those things get work hardened, mm -hmm. and if you're using a, a a spark plug gasket probe you don't have the option to to replace it at spark plug replacement time. So, as I said, there's a number of options that you have. I think if it were me, I would I might consider uh, putting in the uh, the Tannis hot bolts and freeing up the uh, the spark plug well for uh, uh, for the normal kind of uh, CHT probe that goes in there. Okay, sounds like a good idea. But Greg could always move to a warmer climate. That's a fourth option. <laughs> 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 You fly one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That could work. Yeah, but, you know, when we do um, analysis of engine data at Savvy Analysis, um, when we see uh, people complain about high CHTs, one of the first questions we ask is, well, what where's your probe? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's so. often the case, and they just didn't even realize there was a difference. Yeah. Yeah. There's also the thing, and I assume being a 172, you don't have a, an original or OEM uh, CHT probe in there to deal with. But on some of the other airplanes that do have uh, factory CHT, it takes up a specific cylinder. And on Cessnas, I know it's often the cylinder that that's to be installed in is called out in the type certificate data sheet. Right. So if you put uh, your CHT probes in, you'll have to put a different probe on that one cylinder. So we'll often see data where three of the four or five of the six cylinders are reading all nice together and there's this one strange outlier. And that's usually because they've used a different type probe out of necessity. You're very fortunate in that all four of yours can be 
the same type probe. So if you have problems, it's across the board. So you, mm -hmm. you, can, you don't know, they're all gonna be reading strangely. Right. But should uh, Greg be adjusting his alarm setting, uh, knowing that the CHT probes are reading incorrectly? Sure. Uh, that's yeah. a good he idea. Should, he, he should be adjusting everything if, mm -hmm. if he's gonna keep using those spark plug gasket probes. Right. Well, the best part is, you know, you knew there was a problem even before you dialed in, right, Greg? You were just looking for solutions. Right. I knew there might be a difference. I just didn't know how much and how much it yeah. was or whether I needed to adjust. So, yep. Well, you've only got four cylinders, and I bet four of those Tannis hot bolts wouldn't cost that much. Right. Right. So, yeah. Great. Well, thank you for the advice. Appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. That was a really interesting question. Appreciate you coming. Okay. okay. Yep. Thanks. Enjoy. Uh huh. Thank you. Bye bye now. Bye bye. Bye. So our next question is one that I know Mike has uh, written about quite a bit very recently. And Jonathan has a question on major and minor alterations with a lot of confusion about that. Go ahead, Jonathan, let us know what your question is. Yeah, hey guys. So my question is um, major versus minor alteration determination. Um, in the wild out there, if you will, there's there's a lot of modifications that you can make to, to a lot of different airplanes, such as uh, the Rosen Sun Visors, is, fairly generic, um, and, and Whelan strobes are, are another great example of items that if you look at the strict definition, let's say strict to the fairly general definitions of major versus minor in the FARs, it would appear that these are minor items, but but there's an STC against them. So if there's an STC, well, it must be a major alteration, right? And so that's my question is, is the two screws that it took for me to install um, Rose and Sun visors onto my Musketeer really a major alteration? <laughs> We can tell That's, what you think it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's Just telegraphing an answer. It's a very interesting question, and, and Mike has done some real recent stuff on it. But on the uh, on the sun visors, did you happen to look at the STC and read what was on the back page? Uh, I read through the installation uh, instructions themselves, but not the uh, – I didn't look at the certificate itself. Yeah, actually, read through it because – they state, the factory states that, yeah, it's it's an STC, but they don't think you need to do a 337 for it. <laughs> so it's just to, just to add to the confusion. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Is that a CYA on the company's part? Well, they probably, they probably got a lot of questions about it, and they probably are trying to pre-answer the question. Yeah. The, the, the fact that Rosen has an STC means that at some point in the distant past, they hoodwinked some FAA guy into thinking that this was a major change to the type design. Because if it wasn't, they shouldn't have been issued an STC. Now, why would Rosen want to be issued an STC? Well, the reason is because it gives them much better protection of their, of their intellectual property. And it makes it a lot harder for somebody else to come along and do a Rosen look-alike. Uh, so Rosen has a really good reason for wanting to have an STC. But the question of major versus minor alteration is always made by the installing mechanic who may not agree with the FAA guy who issued the STC a million years ago. So from a theoretical standpoint, you know, my position is I would have absolutely no problem with somebody saying, 
I'm going to install this as a minor alteration. That's the theoretical answer. From a practical standpoint, if you do that, you may run into some IA doing an annual sometime in the future who, who isn't, isn't quite as interested in researching the regs as maybe the three of us are, who may say, oh, no, no, it's an STC. You have to have a 337. That's not a terrible thing. If you ran into such an IA and he said, you got to have a 337 because it's an STC, Rose and Sunvisors, you just say, well, fine. Would you, would you fill one out for me? Because there's no reason that the 337 has to be done simultaneously with the alteration. In fact, it's not unusual for us to run into a major uh, repair or a major alteration that we have no idea who did it or when it was done. (laughs) And that's not a big problem because an IA can simply create a 337 and in the description it says that that there's such and such a say an alteration in, in conformance with STC number whatever it was was done on date unknown by persons unknown because the FAA doesn't care who did it they just want a record of it and what the IA is doing by filing that 337 is to correct the omission in the record and and put a record of that alteration on file in the aircraft's public record. So, uh, you know, again, this is one of these situations where if you put it in as a minor alteration, I think you are in, you're complying with the regulations, but you might run into an IA somewhere down the road who's doing an annual inspection who disagrees and says, no, I think they're, I think we need a 337 and, and, and that's okay. Okay. Yeah. And yep. uh, thank you for that. So it sounds like the the fundamental order is really the determination of the alteration, which is the installer's burden. And then if the STC is there, great, that's that's your data. And if it's not there and it's a minor, then you're you could be okay if you have other data. But if it's a major, then you know hopefully there's there's a STC there, or maybe you go field to prove it or something like that. Yeah, if it's if it's an alteration that doesn't have an STC, then there's a whole lot of different discussion that's going to happen. But if there is an STC, it's one of those with us in any way at our shop, it's just way easier to do a 337. Just do it. It takes a few minutes to fill it out. You send it in and you're done. And it alleviates the owner having any kind of problem later, usually when they get ready to sell the airplane, because it'll always come up in a pre-buy, wait a minute, you put on these sun visors and my goodness, that's a major alteration. You don't have paperwork and it's going to take hours and hours. It's like 10 minutes, but anyway. Airplane's not airworthy to fly. That's right. You're, we're, we're grounding your airplane. Yeah. Not, that, not that they have the authority to do that, but anyway, if it's if you're talking about a, a repair, which we do a lot of structural repairs here, if you do a, a logbook entry, for a major repair and there's definitions for major repair, then it's still up to the person doing the work to create that major repair. To go back and create another 337 20 years down the road for a repair that was done by someone else, it's still the same process, but the determination is a little more open, I guess, to decide whether you should or shouldn't do it. And that major minor thing, people can debate a little more. 
Yeah, I mean, even you could still go back and 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 document a structural repair later, and you could sure. just have to inspect it, and and somebody would have to verify that it complied with the structural repair manual. But it's harder to to do it after the fact than to do it while you're doing it. Yeah. Obviously, yeah, especially if you have to go find some approved data for that major repair, that becomes a little more difficult. Yeah. Well, very good. There. Thank you guys for the discussion on that. Um, just one quick follow-up, if, if I'm not too much over my time. Is a major change and a major alteration the same thing, or do they have different definitions? Because in researching the question I just asked you guys, I've seen some places where they they equate the two, and then I've seen other places where they where they don't. Wait, the major change versus a major alteration? I haven't heard major change. Right. Well, it the 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 requirement the the significance of a major change is a major change to a type design is what triggers the requirement for an STC. Oh. And and the, there's a big, huge difference between a major change and a major alteration. A major change is something that the FAA makes a decision on. A major alteration is something that an installing mechanic makes a decision on. So they're quite, they're quite different. Is that term defined in part one, major change? No. Not in part yeah, twenty one. Yeah. Heard that officially. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's it's part it's part twenty one. Got it. Okay. Uh, exactly. I which is which has to do with certification. Well, that's why I had not heard that. Yeah, before. see, you you're a mechanic, Paul. You only know oh, forty three. Yeah. You don't look at yeah. any of the rest of that stuff. I'm a forty three guy. <laughs> Keep me out of that other stuff. Forty three is nice and small. It it reads in a matter of minutes, you know. I'm a pilot too, but I try to stay out of part ninety one. It's way too long. Yeah. yeah. No pictures in part 91, it's just, you know, not not for me. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. I just asked that so I could get somebody to agree with me. I live in the <laughs> I live in part 21 for work, so yeah, uh, that's oh, okay. uh, good to know. I'm not the only crazy one. <laughs> uh, no, you're you're definitely not alone. You got a lot of good company and craziness. But but I, Jonathan, I agree 100 percent with 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 your assessment of what the ordering of the decision tree should be. All right. Well, I like that too. So, thank you guys so much. <laughs> yeah, Jonathan, yeah. great question. Thanks for uh, thanks for calling in. That was wonderful. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you guys. Well, that's a wrap. We know a lot more about maintenance than podcasting, so we'd love to hear from you. Give us your ideas on what you'd like us to talk about. Send your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun out there. We'll see you next time. See ya. Bye-bye, everybody.